Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, as we fix our minds upon your word, we pray that you would give us your spirit. Having your spirit, I pray that he would work in our hearts and illumine our minds so that we might be those who hear this word and become quick doers of this word. Lord, work in us through your word preached. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So the end of all things is near. What a text to come to today when the governors of many of our states are putting millions of people under stay-at-home orders. And when our businesses are being commanded by our governments to stay closed and when gatherings of people are being limited to 10 or less. And when a nasty Virus threatens to kill millions of people. The end of all things is near. The Christians, the Apostle Peter was writing to had immense difficulties as well. And the Apostle Peter was, was writing to both sober them and to encourage them. And here he begins by saying, the end of all things is near. For those who cling to this life, right, that sort of message is is not welcome. That sort of message is not welcome news. Those hopes and aspirations, graduating from college, landing a well-paying job, finding a spouse, having children, sort of. That's not what people aspire to today, unfortunately. Becoming... uh, an actor, right? Indulging the senses, traveling around the world and seeing God's beautiful creation and man's amazing accomplishments, growing old and retiring with plenty of wealth to spare. Those hopes and aspirations make one cling to life. Right? This life, we assume, is our main source of happiness. And happiness and ease and comfort are what's due to us. Prophet comes into that context and announces the end of all things is near. And that message is not welcome. What do you mean the end of all things is near? She says, I want to visit Hawaii before I die. I want to visit Colorado and experience my own Rocky Mountain High. 
Right? I want to see my grandchildren dominate in high school sports and make it into the big leagues. Right? I want to, I want to run my business and make money hand over fist and be a benefactor to the world. I want to fall in love. And the prophet, though, comes into that mindset and says the end of all things is near. And when the prophet says that in a prosperous age, it's ignored as the message of a fool or the message of a chicken little. End of all things is near. But what about now, today, when fear grips hearts as it has the hearts of our nation? Is the message, the end of all things is near, any more welcome? No, it's not. It's not. Those of us who are in a panic, right? And dear brothers and sisters, it's hard not to be because of our little faith. So you may admit to others that you're not panicking, but in your heart you may be. But those who are in a panic are panicking because we think we might die. And then what about my children? What about my spouse? What about my wife figuring out all of my online passwords? Right? What about my legacy? What about my church and pastor's college? What about the works of my hands? What happens after I die? So when the prophet speaks to those who are in a panic, his words are not welcome either. He's seen as the, as the man who throws fuel on an already raging fire. Who, though, can hear these words of the apostle, the end of all things is near, and receive them with welcome? The answer to that is very easy. It's the one who endures suffering in this life by faith in Jesus Christ. That man is the only one who hears these words and thinks, Amen. So be it. Bring it. Bring it on. I shared the following portion of uh, Charles Spurgeon's commentary on Psalm 91 with the elders and deacons at our meeting on Wednesday. It describes the sort of man that welcomes the announcement that the end of all things is near. The man described in this psalm fills out the measure of his days and whether he dies young or old, he is quite satisfied with life and is content to leave it. He shall rise from life's banquet as a man who has had enough and would not have more even if he could. If you want more from life's banquet, as Spurgeon put it, you need more time. And you need more time free from struggle. And you need more time without a raging virus threatening your livelihood and life, and you you just need more time. But those who, who have been trained by suffering, those who have been trained by suffering, they welcome the end of all things. They just, they, they want Jesus to return. They want to hear the groaning of all creation cease as is, as it's transformed by Christ's redemption. right? Scripture teaches us this. A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, 
will be like his teacher. And we are training with Jesus Christ, and his curriculum is what? His curriculum is suffering. It's the same curriculum from which he learned. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Suffering trains us to hate this life. It trains us to hate this life. That's not wrong. It trains us to hate this life and cling to the next. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If you don't hate your own life, you can't be Jesus' disciple. Oh, it's easy for us optimistic post-millennialists to get so caught up in redeeming society and, and dream of implementing God's law that, that we lose sight of the first principle, which is that this life is marked by suffering. And because of that, to live as Christ and to die is gain. Always that will be true. And that that suffering is God's curriculum for us. It's the way He trains us. It's the way He prepares us for the lack of suffering. Even should the message of the gospel spread through all the nations, I seriously doubt that God would give up disciplining His children through suffering. There will be no time now or in the distant future should the Lord wait when this statement of the Apostle Paul will not be true. I have the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. But you're still not convinced, are you? It really does seem like it would be much better to live a long and prosperous life and that to depart now and be with Christ would, would not be very much better. And so when you hear the prophet announce the end of all things is near, you get angry. Or at the very least, you get disappointed. That, dear brothers and sisters, is born of weak faith. When we think that, when we think that way, when we're disappointed that the end of all things would be near, we reveal the weakness of our faith and the strength of our fearfulness is what we reveal. When the Apostle Peter says the end of all things is near, the faithful rise up and say, Maranatha, come quickly. Come now. Please do not wait another moment. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. The day before his wedding, the faithful man says, Amen, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Right, The day before her graduation from high school, the young woman, the faithful young woman says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. The day before his inauguration as the President of the United States, a faithful president would say, Amen, come quickly Lord Jesus. The day before a young man is about to inherit his father's full estate, he says, to live as Christ and to die as gain. So let's be clear about this. It is only the faithful man who has been trained by suffering that rejoices to hear the prophet say, the end of all things is near. He's been trained by God himself to set his mind on things above rather than the things of the earth. He's steeped in all the good promises of Scripture. 
So much so that his, his temptation is to be disappointed that the Lord has waited as long as he has to straighten everything that is crooked. That man gets impatient. And that is precisely what the Apostle Peter addresses near the end of his second letter. He, he writes this, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And then Peter goes on, he says, For when they maintain this, it escapes, it, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. The faithful man provoked by the mocking of those who say things are as they will be and are always going to be may be impatient about the Lord's slowness, but he is taught here in Second Peter that God is not slow. He is not slow. A thousand years is like a day to the Lord. And the reason the Lord waits is that He intends to call all His elect to Himself. They must be born. They must come to faith. They must repent. But the faithful man hears the prophet say, the end of all things is near and he perks up. He sits on the edge of his seat. He finds encouragement within the bleak darkness of this fallen world. He longs for things to be as they should be. And he, having seen Jesus and held him in his arms, as Simeon did, says, Now, Lord, you are releasing your servant to depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon was one that would have welcomed the prophet's statement, the end of all things is near. He had grown old waiting, and now that redemption had come, he was ready at that moment to depart and be with God. So those who are trained by suffering will welcome the statement of the Apostle Peter. Those who think that they will live forever and go from better to better shun this report. Calvin in his commentary writes this, though the faithful heart here, though the faithful hear that their happiness is elsewhere than in the world, yet as they think that they should live long, this false thought renders them careless and even slothful so that they direct not their thoughts to the kingdom of God. Hence the apostle that he might rouse them from the drowsiness of the flesh reminds them that the end of all things was nigh. By which he announces that we ought not to sit still in the world, 
from which we must soon remove. Do we get this? Do we not err to think that we will live forever and that that is our due in this life? It's not until we are threatened with a collapsing economy and deadly virus that we actually think about this, isn't it? Some of you have been given dire diagnoses from, from doctors, and so you've had to think about your mortality in the coming end of your days, and that suffering has been helpful to you. It's given you proper perspective to fix your eyes on what is truly important, and that, of course, is Jesus Christ and Him crucified for the forgiveness of your sins. But others of you have not been trained in this way, and you are in a panic. You must come to terms with the fact that your end is near, that your days are numbered, and that you are not due even another minute of this day. And then you can faithfully proclaim along with the psalmist that the deadly pestilence will not touch you. Because you know that God has you in the palm of His hand and that He is a bulwark and He is a shield to you that, you, that you have entrusted yourself to Jesus by faith, and so you are good. Your body may die, but immediately at that point, you will be made perfect in holiness and pass into glory. The end of all things is near. Praise God. The end of all things is near. Would that it were now! The end of all things is near. Why two months from now? Why two years from now? So that's the first thing. When we're trained by suffering, we welcome the knowledge that the end is near. Whether that means our own death or the universal renovation of the world by Jesus' return. The apostle goes on and says, Because the end of all things is nigh, that it's near, therefore, he says, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. I think we're helped by our present circumstances, aren't we? What has been the general response to God announcing that is providential allowance of this virus, the very opposite of what the apostle says should be the response of those who see the end coming. Because the end is coming, he says, Be temperate and sober. Rather, what we see, perhaps from ourselves and certainly from those who do not put their trust in God, what we see from them is not temperance and sobriety or self-restraint and and sober-mindedness. We see the very opposite. In other words, dear Christian, your response to all that is going on around us and let us Not forget that what's going on in our nation is by God's sovereign decree. He's doing something in this. right? Your response to all this trial that we are going through can be and should be self-restraint and sober-mindedness. Self-restraint, sober-mindedness. It can be and and it should be calm, your response. Instead, what we see in ourselves and what we see in others is panic. We cannot restrain ourselves from stockpiling toilet paper. 
And we especially can't restrain ourselves from stockpiling toilet paper when we see other people stockpiling toilet paper. And now there is something to being self-restrained and sober. Right? When, when we panic, what do we do? When we panic, what do we do? We tend to take matters into our own hands. That's what we do when we panic. We say we must do this and we must do that and I've got to go here and I've got to go there and, and what about this and what about that and, and who can I call and what will the state do to protect me and where can I get some meat? And the very last thing we do or, or we even think is helpful for the moment is to pray. We've confessed this in our in our confession of sin this morning. The apostle says, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. All about the Christian can be breaking down. We, we can be beside the grave of our recently deceased son or daughter. We can be standing in line waiting to get a scrap of bread. We can be imprisoned and tortured by wicked governments. We can be waiting the symptoms of COVID-19 to hit us, and yet we can be calm and must be calm because we need to pray. The book of Isaiah begins with a description of God's anger against Israel for her sins. He calls Israel a sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. And because of their sin and idolatry, he promises them discipline, suffering. What we see, and then we see what this suffering was like in verses 7 and 11 of chapter 1. Your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overrun by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. We know that Sodom and Gomorrah were razed to the ground by God's wrath. And yet the prophecies of Isaiah, even beginning in the same chapter of Isaiah, speak of the redemption that God is going to bring to them. Even as He's laying out their sins, He's making promises of redemption. And what are the people doing? Sure, just like us, there were some who would turn to Egypt. Who would turn away from God in panic and seek to save themselves. Right? Panic! Egypt. That's what Israel did when they panicked. Went to Egypt. Went back. Egypt. But there were others who turned to prayer. Right? There is this wonderful description of prayer in the closing chapters of Isaiah. It shows us that some of those in the midst of suffering did what was right rather than turning to their own abilities. They cried out to God. Isaiah 62, 6 and 7. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord 
Take no rest for yourselves and give God, give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Give God no rest until he brings Jerusalem back. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest until he acts, until he provides, until he protects, until he converts until he rescues, until he establishes his church in all the earth. If we panic, we give God all kinds of rest. Right? If we panic, we don't pray. If we are restrained and sober-minded, we will not give God rest until he acts. When calamities come and we're in the midst of one, whether or not COVID-19 actually kills millions, it's wrecked and will wreck our economy, right? So it's a calamity one way or the other. We're going to either, in response to it, panic or pray. One is born of unbelief. One is born of faith. One derives from trust in man. One derives from trust in God. One is sin One is righteousness, one accomplishes nothing, and one accomplishes much. Prayer. Prayer accomplishes much. Now, really, that is the rub, isn't it? Prayer seems so passive, while panic followed by stockpiling meat seems so active. But dear brothers and sisters, why have we not already come to terms with such things? Can you seriously be a Christian who has not dealt with the fact that prayer seems passive? I mean, that's Christianity 101, right? We are supposed to move on to maturity, right? And so have we gotten this far in our Christian walk and we are still struggling with whether God hears our prayers and whether prayer is true action? I mean, how can that be? In his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, J.I. Packer writes this helpful summary of prayer. Um, I, I keep coming back to this summary. It's always helpful to me. He says, I do not intend to spend any time at all proving to you the general truth that God is sovereign in his world. There's no need. For I know that if you are a Christian, you believe this already. How do I know that? Because I know that if you are a Christian, you pray. And the recognition of God's sovereignty is the basis of your prayers. In prayer, you ask for things and give thanks for things. Why? Because you recognize that God is the author and source of all the good that you have already had and all the good that you hope for in the future. This is the fundamental philosophy of Christian prayer. The prayer of a Christian is not an attempt to force God's hands or hand, but a humble acknowledgement of helplessness and dependence. When we are on our knees, we know that it is not we who control the world. It is not our power, therefore, to supply our needs by our own independent efforts, stockpiling toilet paper. Every good thing that we desire for ourselves and for others must be sought from God and will continue, if it comes at all, as a gift from His hands. If this is true even of our daily bread, 
and the Lord's Prayer teaches us that it is, much more is it true of spiritual benefits. This is all luminously clear to us when we are actually praying, whatever we may be uh, betrayed into saying in argument afterward. In effect, therefore, what we do every time we pray is to confess our own impotence in God's sovereignty. The very fact that a Christian prays is thus proof positive that he believes in the lordship of his God. Now, that holds true for you, but only if you pray. If you've left off praying, then perhaps you do not believe in a sovereign, omnipotent God. And so as calamity comes, you will be like the Israelites during Jeremiah's time. After Jerusalem was destroyed by the Chaldeans, not everyone from the city had been taken off into captivity. You know that. Some fled out into the fields surrounding Jerusalem. In fact, the armies had. Some, when the destruction came, had hidden themselves in those regions. And so when the armies of of the Chaldeans left, those people came back together. And some who returned consulted with the prophet and wondered if they should now go down to Egypt for protection. And so they inquired of the prophet Jeremiah. And what we see in the passage that I'm going to read is the choice between trusting in God and trusting in man. Heed God's word or take matters into your own hand. And stick with me. I want to go through this this long passage. You're all quarantined anyway, so I can just keep preaching. Jeremiah 42, verse 1. Then all the commanders of the forces, Johanan the son of Korea, Jezaniah the son of Hoshiah, and all the people both small and great approached and said to Jeremiah the prophet, please let our petition come before you and pray for us to the Lord your God, that is for all this remnant, because we are left but a few out of many as your own eyes now see us that the Lord your God may tell us the way in which we should walk and the thing which we should do. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard you. Behold, I am going to pray to the Lord your God in accordance with your words. And I will tell you the whole message which the Lord will answer you. I will not keep back a word from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with the whole message with which the Lord your God will send to us, send you to us. Whether it is pleasant or unpleasant, we will listen to the voice of the Lord our God, to whom we are sending you, so that it may go well with us when we listen to the voice of the Lord our God. Now at the end of ten days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Then he called for Johanan the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces that were with him, and for all the people with Uh, both small and great, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition before him. If you will indeed stay in this land, then I will build you up and not tear you down, and I will plant you and not uproot you, for I will relent concerning the calamity that I have inflicted on you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you are now fearing, Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and deliver you from his hand. I will also show you compassion so that he will have compassion on you and restore you to your own soil. But if you are going to say, 
we will not stay in this land so as not to listen to the voice of the Lord your God saying, no, but we will go to the land of Egypt where we will not see war or hear of the sound of, the, of a trumpet or hunger for bread and we will stay there. Then in that case, listen to the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you really set your mind to enter Egypt and go in to reside there, then the sword, which you are afraid of, will overtake you there in the land of Egypt, and the famine about which you are anxious will follow closely after you there in Egypt, and you will die there. So all the men who set their mind to go to Egypt to reside there will die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. And they will have no survivors or refugees from the calamity that I am going to bring on them. For thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and wrath have been poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you enter Egypt, and you will become a curse, an object of horror, an imprecation, and a reproach, and you will see this place no more. The Lord has spoken to you, O remnant of Judah, do not go into Egypt. You should clearly understand that today I have testified against you, for you have only deceived yourselves. For it is you who sent me to the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us to the Lord our God, and whatever the Lord our God says, tell us so, and we will do it. So I have told you today, but you have not obeyed the Lord your God, even in whatever he has sent me to tell you. Therefore, you should now clearly understand that you will die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence in the place where you wish to go to reside. Into chapter 43. But as soon as Jeremiah, whom the Lord their God had sent, he finished telling all the people all the words of the Lord their God, that is, all these words, Azariah, the son of Hoshiah, Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, you are telling a lie. The Lord our God has not sent you to say you are not to enter Egypt to reside there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, is inciting you against us to give us over into the hand of the Chaldeans so they, so they will put us to death or exile us to Babylon. So Jehanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to stay in the land of Judah. But Johanan the son of Korea and all the commanders of the forces took the entire remnant of Judah who had returned from all the nations to which they had been driven away in order to reside in the land of Judah. The men, the women, the children, the king's daughters, and every person that Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, had left with Gedaliah the son of Ahikam and grandson of Shaphan, together with Jeremiah the prophet and Baruch the son of Neriah, and they entered the land of Egypt. They did not obey the voice of the Lord and went in as far as Toppenes. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and Toppenes, saying, Take some large stones in your hands and hide them in the mortar in the brick terrace, which is at the entrance of Pharaoh's palace in Toppenes, in the sight of some of the Jews. And say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am going to send and get Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I'm going to set his throne right over these stones that I have hidden. And he will spread his canopy over them. He will also come and strike the land of Egypt. Those who are meant for death will be given over to death, and those for captivity to captivity, and those for the sword 
sword. They did not have sound judgment and sober spirits. They may have gone to prayer. They may have asked the prophet to go to prayer and report. But those men did not intend to be sober-spirited and have have self-restraint and listen to the word of the Lord. They did not, and the consequence is they determined to even disregard the, the Lord's direct answer from a prophet. They panicked. And the consequences would be even more dire for them. Even now going down to Egypt, God would bring Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar right down to Egypt and and Nebuchadnezzar would set up his throne in Egypt. So dear brothers and sisters, these days when we are sitting very close to calamity, our first work should be to give ourselves to prayer. To seek the Lord. We should not turn our back on God's word and head down to Egypt. That would be to panic, to let the world know that our hope in God is is fake. It's superficial. It's only effective when we're prospering. So let's loudly proclaim to the world that our trust is in the Lord. We'll do that by praying even as we work on vaccines and economic plans and social distancing. Right, let's pray for our government and that their decisions would lead to health. Let's pray for our health care workers right, who are on the front lines at this point, that they would be protected even as they run into the fire. Let's pray for our nation that she would, and this I think it has to be the locus the, the, or the focus of our prayers, is let's pray for our nation that she would awaken from her spiritual slumber and heed God's warning that he sent to us. So rather than talking about prayer, let's pray now, remembering that God has told us the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer.